We're going to start with two of the most pressing public transit projects in the lower mainland right now. Lots of people waiting for shovels to get put in the ground and for work to start in these projects. What is the delay? Now, I'm talking about the SkyTrain extension out to Langley. And how about the replacement of the clogged Massey Tunnel? We're still waiting for that one, too. Let's check in now with Rob Fleming, B.C.'s Minister of Transportation. And I'm pleased he could join us today. Minister, thank you for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, you staying cool there in Victoria? I am, and I hope you're taking a break from your uh, long-distance running. I got out for a short run this morning, man. It was still hot at like 6.30 o'clock, the 6.30 this morning. It was, this is going to be brutal. People should stay oh, safe out there. Minister, let's, should. let's start, let's talk about these transit projects that a lot of people are looking, looking forward to. So let's, talk, let's start with, uh, SkyTrain out to Langley. Like right now, there's only enough, uh, funding in place to build the SkyTrain out to, uh, the Fleetwood neighborhood in Surrey. That the plan is to go all the way to Langley, right? What is the delay there? Yeah, well, we were looking for an active federal partnership, and things changed under COVID in terms of the capacity of TransLink to be the lead agency on that project. Originally, there was an agreement uh, that in exchange for the province uh, increasing its contribution to all uh, Metro Vancouver public transit infrastructure up to 40%, it used to be capped at 33 uh, that we would divide up uh, different uh, responsibilities for projects. But like I say, COVID's been hard on local governments uh, all over the country. TransLink's no different. We committed in October as the province to be the lead on Surrey-Langley SkyTrain. And instead of making it a two-phase project where you would build to Surrey-Fleetwood and then Surrey-Fleetwood to Langley, we want to make this a one-phase project, get it done earlier, uh, get as much... Uh, recovery uh, economic stimulus as we can, uh, do some early works immediately with the city of Surrey, uh, widening Highway 7 to make it compatible for the SkyTrain. So we're waiting on Ottawa for a partnership, but we think uh, we're hearing very positive signals that they're interested all the way up to the Prime oh. Minister's office. This would be the first uh, SkyTrain uh, public transit investment uh, of its kind in 30 years south of the Fraser. And uh, you know the growth out in the Fraser Valley in yeah. 2035, maybe three, 400,000 more people living out there. So let's anchor that community development in good public transit service that connects with the rest of the region. Yeah, I do know about the growth south of the Fraser, and I think they've really been shortchanged in the transit services and projects that they've received out there, and, and they're still waiting. Minister, let me play a clip here for you from Premier John Horgan from last year. This is a, a key commitment from your party in the election campaign to build this SkyTrain out to Langley, and here's what the Premier had to say about it. We want to make this a provincial project, so that takes the pressure off municipalities, it takes pressure off uh, TransLink, we're going to fund it, the, the municipalities will have to find their share, I'll work with the federal government, as I've been doing for the past number of years, to make sure that we get our fair share of the dollars we send to Ottawa coming back here to build the communities that we want to live in. Okay, as of John Horgan speaking last year, saying he's ready to work with the feds to get this project done, but you're telling me we're still waiting for the feds, right? Like, I think I think there'll be an election, federal election this fall. Is that why the delay? Trudeau wants to come out here and snip a ribbon or something, probably. Uh, well, look, I mean, governments do have to do their due diligence. We do have a, a business case that's very current for the first half of that project. We wanted the feds to buy into our vision, which is to make it a one-phase project all the way out to Langley, really shape the growth into the Fraser Valley, get it done quicker. 
So I, I, I see only positive signs coming from Ottawa, but uh, yeah, we need a, we need that to be to, to haven't be official. They, haven't they? I mean, the, the, this federal government seems to spend more transit dollars and infrastructure dollars in the province of Quebec, and, and sometimes the other provinces are are forgotten. Would you agree with that? Well, we did notice that there was a significant $12 billion federal commitment recently to uh, the greater Toronto area, uh, as well as Hamilton. Uh, look, the federal government has announced uh, recently, uh, earlier this year, the creation of what they call a permanent transit fund. We're very interested in that. We think that's a good thing for agencies like TransLink to be able to plan 10 years in advance, fit more projects uh, into their infrastructure agenda. So. There's still some details to come, but I don't see why this project wouldn't be a centerpiece for the new uh, federal permanent transit fund right out here uh, on the West Coast. But but do you think that we get, I don't know, we we don't get treated with as much priority as you just mentioned Toronto? I mean, a lot of people will see a lot of money being poured into Quebec too, right? I think, um, I mean, we're... You mentioned uh, at the top of the show here uh, the Massey Tunnel replacement. That's a yeah. 1959 piece of infrastructure that we desperately have to replace. We see equivalencies in the Champlain Bridge in Montreal, the Gordie Howe Bridge connecting uh, Windsor to uh, Detroit. Uh, significant federal dollars uh, in those projects. Right, National right. trade corridors that are significant. Massey Tunnel is no different. So we're really looking for, forward to a favorable treatment of that application well that's exactly what i'm talking about you know you get these very high profile projects seem to get i don't know more urgent attention from ottawa than our projects here do in bc now speaking of that massey tunnel the chronically clogged massey tunnel i feel for people who have to waste their lives in traffic jams trying to go through that bottleneck let me play this clip here for you minister of uh your friend ian payton the liberal mla in delta south who's been beating the drum on this for years to try and get that a bridge built to replace that tunnel. And uh, here's Ian Payton, the Liberal MLA. Just walked through an awfully muddy potato field to get my new sign out at the entrance to the George Massey Tunnel. Folks, we will get the bridge restarted. When the BC Liberal Party gets back into government, we will start what the BC NDP killed and canceled three and a half years ago. Folks, it's time to end the frustration, the congestion affecting the trucking industry, emergency vehicles, and commuters. Uh, okay, that's Ian Payton put up, putting up a sign outside the Massey Tunnels. It says, build yeah. the bridge, build the bridge. They started, right. the previous Liberal government started to build a bridge uh, to replace the tunnel, and then you guys put the brakes on it. What's going on there? Well, interesting, because the Liberals, when they're trying to cling on to power way back in July 2017, uh, said that they would put the brakes on it and start listening to mayors in Surrey and Delta and the the, uh, the, the regional priorities for uh, investment. But, I mean, here's the thing. I guess the, the difference between us and the opposition is we think that Ottawa should contribute to this project. There's no question about it. Uh, to your point, you know, B.C. deserves the same equitable treatment as uh, Quebec and Ontario. And uh, we don't think that commuters should pay for it. That was the B.C. Liberal model. It would be tolls. You know, commuters living out in, in, in Delta and uh, south of the Fraser would be paying, you know, over a decade, maybe twenty, twenty-five thousand dollars $25,000 of their income, which should be going towards their housing and other parts of their lives that they're trying to make more affordable. So it's a different model. We, don't, we reject the toll model. We want the partnership with Ottawa. They never pursued one. And I think we're getting closer. 
Okay, when can we expect or when do you hope to hear from the feds on these projects to put some money on the table? Like I said, I think there's an election in the fall, and maybe they're waiting to strike while the iron's hot here before an election. I mean, when do you expect to see some money here from the feds? Well, that would work for us if it was uh, this summer or or early fall. Uh, We want to get going. We actually started a a, a Steveston interchange improvement package. You may have saw that last week. We put that out the door. We're going to tender on making traffic flow better uh, in and out of the tunnel. There'll be some transit yeah. priority lanes, bus on shoulder paving, on and off ramp improvements. So that's that's interim stuff uh, that is necessary, but we want uh, favorable treatment from the feds on, 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 the big, on the big prize, which is a replacement uh, for the tunnel. It's uh, 1959, uh, let me do the math here. It's uh, 63 years old um, yeah. and uh, yeah. it's not wide enough and it is a significant congestion point. Uh, we think that okay. this is uh, deserving of an investment from Ottawa. Minister, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it a lot. Thanks for having me, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk e-scooters in Vancouver now. Electric scooters. Those are those stand-up kick scooters. They got the stand-up handlebars. Uh, battery-powered, and these things can book it, too. I've seen some of these scooters really zipping along uh, pretty quickly. Now, they're supposed to go 24 kilometers an hour. They can go faster than that, for sure. Okay, now, what is the legal status of these things in British Columbia? Well, technically illegal, unless unless you live in a, in a city, municipality has decided to get on board with a provincial pilot project, legalize e-scooters and that is exactly what the city of vancouver has done now e-scooters now street legal on the side streets and bike lanes of vancouver that was the city decision of vancouver city council last week now i spoke to vancouver city councilor pete fry about this the other day i believe he was the only councilor who voted against he voted no to these e-scooters i asked him why he said these things can be unsafe here's what he said any, anything's a menace in the in the hands of a of a negligent uh, and inconsiderate operators. You know, you could say the same thing, thing about cars and bicycles and and pretty much any kind of transportation thing. If they're not done utilized with care, uh, they yeah they can become a menace. And I've you know I've certainly seen lots of folks who are responsibly out there and respectfully using stand up scooters, but I've also seen some outrageous behavior. I saw one guy the other day. He was wearing a full combat face mask. And he was weaving in and out of bike traffic like a crazy man, and and it was a that was super reckless. City Councilor Pete Fry on the show last week, and let's get the other side of it now. My guest is Vancouver City Councilor Lisa Dominato, and she supports the e scooter scooter program. And I'm pleased to welcome her back to the show, Councilor. Thank you for coming on. Uh, hi, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's my pleasure to have you here. So you voted in favor of the program, correct? I did. I yeah. did. Uh, Okay, can you make the case for it? Like, for can you explain to the people why this is a good thing for Vancouver? Absolutely, Mike. Um, you know, this is a classic example. You've been following government for a long time uh, of government catching up to technology and science innovation. Um, people are using these all over the place. You're probably seeing it in your own community. I, I walk out the door and people are using them to go to work. Um, they're using them for pleasure. And, um, and from my perspective, this is another alternative and choice for the public. We're talking in the city of Vancouver about how we want to reduce carbon emissions. We want people to use different modes of transportation, not have to be reliant on cars. Well, micro-mobility options um, are another uh, opportunity for people in addition to cycling. I'm a cyclist myself. Um, I walk a lot. I take public transit. Um, but um, as my colleague, Councillor Herbie Young, said in council last week, these are flying off the shelves. People yeah. are using them now. 
And so, um, you know, there's always going to be risk, but it's about managing that risk. And, and one of the opportunities to do that is by piloting it within our, our city and our city boundaries and seeing what works, what isn't working. Yeah, I mean, they are flying off the shelves for sure. I talked to the co-owner of the EV uh, skate shop in Vancouver on the show last week, and he said he can't keep them in stock because as soon as they get them into the store, they just leave the store. They they sell them right away. So they certainly are very popular for sure. Now, where will you be able to ride these e-scooters in Vancouver? It's just side streets and bike lanes, correct? Exactly. So side yeah. streets called minor streets in Vancouver, the streets that don't have the separated lines. So typically your residential streets, um, as right. well as um, separated bike uh, routes. Um, they are prohibited at this time on things like our seawalls. Um, and, and that's a conversation mm. we'll have with Park Board. But in fact, um, you know, cognizant of my colleagues, you know, concerns around safety is that this is actually the, a more cautious approach, what staff are proposing and rolling out. This is um, only applied to privately owned uh, e-scooters only limited to those residential streets and, and bike routes. Uh, and uh, we're not actually pursuing a model that I, I'm interested in seeing in the city, which is a shared model, like we have the Moby bikes, because it's more equitable, because not everybody can afford to own a private um, e-kick scooter. Uh, and so the shared models are um, more equitable, more access, as well as um, for tourists and visitors in the future. Okay, yeah. So right now, with the way this is going to work in Vancouver, is these will be privately owned electric scooters will be allowed. You have not given approval at this point to a shared model or like a rental. You can't rent these things and ride them around in the city. Like other cities have done that, right? Like if you look in Kelowna, uh, they allowed this in Kelowna, these rental e-scooters. And there's a, there's several companies that are offering. They're called Lime. There's one called Zip. There's another mm-hmm. one called Roll, and these are these uh, shared e-scooters where you can just rent them with your credit card and basically leave them around the city after you're finished using them. But they've had problems with them there. Like, you know, I was listening to the mayor the other day saying that these things have been a hazard. People are driving them high. They're driving them out helmets. They're leaving them on the sidewalk and blocking people's ability to use the sidewalk. I mean, don't you have any concerns about that part of it? Yeah, certainly, Mike. And, and that is um, one of the concerns that's been raised with uh, their shared models and, and managing it in terms of being left. You know, we hear about other cities where it's been done where they're just left all over the place, tripping hazards mm-hmm. and so on, and, and people's inexperience with them. And that's why, actually, this proposal is actually more conservative. Staff are saying, here, we're going to try this out in our city for a period of time. It's a three-year pilot. Um, privately owned e-scooters were learned from that. And that's the whole purpose. There's always going to be risk. There is risk if I ride my bicycle and I hit a pothole. Um, and so um, we need to learn and see, are we going to need different infrastructure if we're going to allow e-scooters on our streets? Um, you have to have a helmet. That's required. But like any um, uh, device you're using, whether it's a car, you have to learn to use it. Um, we're also, one of the things I asked about in council, because I think this is really important uh, anytime uh, we're changing uh, uses on our street and allowing something different is, uh, what's the education that we're going to do and public awareness? I think that's a big part of this as well, just is understanding what are the rules of the road? How are you going to use this on our streets? Um, but from my perspective, um, absolutely, public safety is important, physical safety. Um, we've actually asked for a report back earlier. So we were going to get a report back uh, on in 2023, asked for a report back a year earlier to get a sense as to how is this pilot working? What are we right. hearing? What are we learning about? Right. Okay. Yeah. Try it out and see how it goes. Now you mentioned that a helmet is required. 
to ride one of these e-scooters in Vancouver? There's an age limit too, right? I think you got to be 16. Is that correct? 16, yeah. yeah. And and the province has proposed 24 kilometers an hour. Um, that right. is a, the 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 one of the things with the shared models. And again, we're not adopting that right now. Is that there are certain controls that those companies can put in in terms of limiting the speed, limiting the when they're used, so they can't be used after hours. There's a whole bunch of sort of technology features and and things that they can put in place. Um, right. But what we're looking at right now is just um, people who own them um, now are going to buy one. Uh, and, and what I'm seeing is people are using them to commute to work as an alternative. Um, and uh, But I am seeing them used all over the place right now. So there's no regulatory framework uh, because up until right. now they haven't been legal on our streets. So this is a way of trying it out and and uh, learning as we go. And, and staff are going to report back to us as to right. uh, you know, the early results of that. Okay, speaking of Vancouver City Councilor Lisa Dominato, now you mentioned that the e-scooters will be allowed on side streets and bike lanes in Vancouver, but I have seen people riding these on the sidewalk. I've seen them riding them on 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 main main streets and roads where they're not supposed to be used. If what happens if you get like, is there a penalty if you get caught doing that? Yeah, that's something we're going to have to look at. That. Is is there the enforcement aspect of this? Um, one of the things that we're going to focus on is public education and awareness. Um, that's going to be really key to this um, um, because the same rules of the road apply. Um, and and just as like I say, as a cyclist, as a driver, you need to pay attention to your surroundings. And 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 to my colleague's point is that we actually need to be respecting each other on the road. Um, it's shared sure. use. Uh, we have this already. Uh, we allow skateboards on our, our minor streets as well, as well as push scooters. Uh, and so yeah. we really just need to be respectful and thoughtful uh, around this. Okay, what about um, liability? Does the city face any liability risk here? And this is something that your your colleague, Councillor Pete Fry at City Council, said to me the other day on the show, that he is worried about the city facing liability here. Let me play a clip here for, for you of what he had to say. Here's Vancouver City Councillor Pete Fry. It does increase our liability. So just uh, last month, the City of Toronto, uh, their council unanimously voted to repeal their e-scooter pilot, uh, opt out of the provincial pilot there, and actually ban all all stand-up scooters in the, in the City of Toronto. Wow. And key for them was recognizing that, you know, the, the, the geometry of these stand-up scooters and the, and the small wheel size and the, and the fact that there's not a lot of standards of of, of wheel traction and size and that kind of thing, actually um, put put a, a liability on, on the city that they're not prepared to accept. Okay, Councillor Dominato, what do you say to those concerns around liability? Yeah, certainly. Um, uh, liability is always a concern, um, you know, particularly in an instance, um, you know, here where we're now saying, you know, now it's permitted. Um, so yeah. it does increase uh, municipalities' liability. Um, I know um, there was a proposal at Council last week to look at sort of shared indemnification from the province, and, and I said, I think that we should have that conversation, but I still think we should pursue this pilot. Um, but as I said earlier, um, uh, we um, carry liability, um, whether you're driving a motor vehicle, riding a bicycle, uh, using a push scooter, um, um, and so it is something that we need to be mindful of, which is, again, back to why are we doing a pilot um, so that yeah. we understand what are the challenges, what are the risks, uh, what are the opportunities, do we need different infrastructure to support this, do we need licensing, uh, mm. those are all things, do we need different regulatory framework. But right now, the fact is, pragmatically, people are doing it now, they're using them um, as another option, and so I think it's better to learn what we need to have in place right. to ensure people are safe and to minimize uh, liability, in fact, and risk.
Okay, we're going to see how it goes. Counselor, thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Mike. All right, welcome back. Talking with the hottest jobs in B.C. with the heat dome continuing to bake the province. Let's check in with Ken Mayhew, owner and chairman of Penfolds Roofing and Solar, a familiar voice to CKNW listeners. Hey, Ken. Good morning, Mike. Hey, Ken, how are your people staying cool out there when they're up on those roofs? Man, it looks brutal. <laughs> really, really difficult. Actually, um, it's, uh, it, it's dangerous for anybody to be working on a roof. So we've actually shut all our, all of our installations have been shut down. We're not doing wow. any work. Wow. I don't, I don't blame you one bit. I mean, this is too much. Come yeah, on. No, it, it, it's just, it's just too dangerous for our, for our workers to be out there and it's unsafe. And so we've stopped all of our installations. I think that this morning we loaded one or two roofs before it got too hot. And since then, um, everybody's just gone off to a, to a cooler spot. Wow. Okay. I know you've been, uh, Penfold's been around for so long. Have you ever had to do that before? Never. Wow. Never in, uh, have I ever uh, done this. And uh, it's unprecedented. This morning when we got in, we uh, had a quick meeting with everybody and just decided that it was unsafe for anyone to go up in this heat. Okay. How long do you think you'll be shut down? While the heat continues, uh, yeah. I believe it's supposed to be like this tomorrow again. And uh, if so, we will just we will just keep shut down until it's safe for our workers to go back uh, onto roofs and do safe installations. Okay, Ken, I think that's a really wise decision that you've made here. Uh, thanks a lot for giving us the update on that. I appreciate it a lot. That is Ken Mayhew there, the owner of Penfolds Roofing, very familiar voice here on CKNW. Let's just go to your phone calls now and some of the hottest jobs out there. Richard in Surrey. Hey, Richard. Hey, how you doing? What's the hottest job? Bailing hay. Oh. Out on Barson Island in Surrey when I was a kid, we used to bale hay, and you're in the middle of the field loading the back of a trailer all day, and then at the end of it, when it's full, you got to take it into the barn and unload it into the barn where it's, you know, another got to be... 15 degrees hotter. Oh, man. That's a hot one. Yeah. Oh, man. Would you do that all day long? All day for about oh, eight man. bucks an hour. <laughs> <laughs> Bet you lost some weight. Okay. Thanks, Richard, for that. Let's go to Blake in Surrey. Hi, Blake. Hey, how you doing? I'm good. What's your hottest job? Well, all these jobs are, of course, going to probably suck, but I'd like anyone to talk this. I used to work at Esco and Portco-Quitlam before they shut down. I helped them out a little bit to get their orders out. Carbon yeah. art gouging in the middle of summer in the foundry. Full leather, positive air helmet, whole deal. Stop that. That is ridiculous. If anybody knows what that is. <laughs> okay, Blake, thanks for that. Let's go to David in Vancouver. Hey, David. Hey, how's it going? Good. What's your hottest job? Uh, I work as a service plumber, and last summer it was probably not quite as hot as today, but definitely plus 30, and we were. Uh, Repiping a house and all the pipes went through the attic, and in the attic it was probably close to fifty. Oh, in an attic! Oh man, that's got to be sweltering in there. Whoa, unbelievable! Thank you, David. Jeff and Agassi. Hey, Jeff. I ran a paving machine, so oh. we used to sit up for the paver. The trucks would dump in hot asphalt for about four hundred degrees and get augered out, and I would sit right over top of the auger on the hot asphalt and lay, lay road. Oh, man, that's got to be brutal. <laughs> Especially with the heat. There's got to be tons of heat coming. How hot is that asphalt? Well, it comes out of the truck at 400 degrees. Yeah, that's what I'm talking right. about. Yeah, you feel like a roasted turkey at the end of the day. <laughs> okay, Jeff, thank you for that. 604-280-9898.
star 9898 on your cell. Phil in Surrey. Hey, Phil. Hello, Mike. I really enjoy your show. I've been listening to you for a long time. Cool. Thank you. What's your hottest job? I'm 73 now, but back, back 35 years ago. It wasn't near as hot as it is now, but I lasted about four hours. I was working on a roof with my two brothers, tar and gravel. Oh, yeah. I got sent home after four hours because I couldn't take the heat. It was just, it was just too much. Oh, yeah. Roofing. Thank you, Phil, for the call. When you see those roofers up there working in the heat, man, I just think that's got to be one of the worst. I'm not surprised to hear that Penfold's there and that, that update uh, we had from Ken Mayhew there that Penfold's is actually shut down for the day. I don't blame them one bit. I mean, this is a safety thing for those guys up there. Wayne and Surrey. Hey, Wayne. Yep. My uh, worst uh, or most hottest job was bailing hay as well, is the uh, same as Richard. Uh, one day it was over 100 degrees, and I was working with my dad. And as we're going around this field, we had to stop and change every round or two to, to relieve each other. And uh, it was just, just horrible. And I've used that experience the rest of my life. I've worked in a lot of hot places and everything, but nothing nothing toughened me up. Nothing was ever as tough as, as bailing hay on that one particular day when it was well over 100 degrees. Okay. It was just sweltering, and it was horrible. Yeah, it's a character builder for sure. Len and Kelowna. Len, we got 30 seconds. you got to go quick, okay? Go ahead. You got it. I'm doing it right now. I'm working on transport refrigeration units, trucks and trailers that deliver your goods to Safeway stores and whatnot. They're diesel engine-powered units, so I'm on the roof of this truck right now. With the engine running, I'm in the airflow. I've got a 180-degree engine heat flowing on me on top of this stuff. If you, oh, put your man. On the roof, if you put your wrenches on the roof of the truck for five minutes, you can't pick them up with your bare hands. They're so hot. You have to cover them with rags so you can pick your wrenches up between twists. Len, stay, stay safe out there, man. Thanks a lot for all your calls, and my thanks to Ken Mayhew there from Penfold's Roofing, too. All right, welcome back to the show. We're keeping an eye on that tragic condo collapse in Florida for you. The official death toll there now has risen to 10 uh, confirmed deaths in the rubble of that collapsed Florida condo. Uh, 151 people still unaccounted for, including four Canadians. And the search continues. Have a listen to this now. This is Susan Harper, Canadian Consul General in Miami. We're also in a situation here specifically where we're putting pieces of a puzzle together. What we're trying to find out was who was in that building, but we don't have that information. No one does. So local authorities have the information that they can piece together. We have information that we can piece together. Okay. Do we have, uh, do we have Jackson, Tim? Okay. Do we, do we have Jackson Prosco? Okay, having some technical trouble. I think he's on the line. Jackson, are you there? Hi, Mike. Oh, Jackson? Hi, Mike. Can you hear me? Okay, having some technical trouble. We were trying, hoping to go live there to Jackson Prosco, live on the line, global news reporter in Surfside, Florida. And uh, But unfortunately, we're having a little trouble connecting with him. Let me try one more time. Jackson, can you hear me? Yes, can you hear me? Oh, thank goodness. Okay, we got you good. Jackson, thanks a lot for doing right. this on a busy day for you. Um, Jackson, what is the latest on the rescue effort? By the way, Jackson is live in Surfside, Florida, the site of this tragedy. Jackson, what is the latest on the rescue efforts there? So as it stands right now, this slow, methodical rescue effort is still underway. Uh, they say it is still a rescue. It is not a recovery mission at this point, and they say it will continue that way until they've exhausted all possible options for finding people. Uh, it may seem hard to think there, that there's much reason for hope here after five days. Our rescuers say what's keeping them going, though, is the fact that they've actually discovered, using cameras, 
uh, void spaces inside that pancake building that would be big enough for a person to be trapped in. They haven't found anybody there, but they're saying that knowing those types of spaces exist gives them reason to keep on searching. Okay, that's amazing. I guess that's hopeful that maybe, maybe we could see some miracles emerge out of that rubble there. When we've seen the TV pictures here, Jackson, it looks unbelievable how this thing is pancaked, as you mentioned. It looks like a, like an earthquake hit it. Total collapse here, that part of that building. I mean, what's it like up close when you're on, on the ground there in Surfside? Can you, can you sort of paint a word picture of what this thing is like? It looks terrible. Yeah, I mean, I can certainly tell you as somebody who's been in earthquake zones before, it's very reminiscent of that, the way the building just collapsed and, and is piled there. Uh, the city is devastated by grief, and you see uh, all these family members coming into town. Uh, there's actually where we're located, the hotel across the street is the reunification center, and so you see car after car pull up. Family members get out, they hug, they cry in the streets, and they go inside for these briefings where they're sort of given a realistic sense of uh, you know, the chances of, of survivals and rescues here. Uh, what's been happening for the past two days, and it's happening right now, is that people are actually loading up onto buses, and those family members are being brought directly to the site. And I asked a member of the search and rescue team what that is like for those families. And they say, look, it is powerful for them. It gives them some comfort, but it also perhaps helps them digest information that they weren't quite willing to accept until they had seen the site for themselves. Okay, unbelievable. What do we know about the four Canadians who are unaccounted for here? We don't have specific details on them. What I can tell you is that they were uh, from three different families. So two families in one condo unit and one family in a different condo unit. So uh, it seems like somebody perhaps had, had uh, somebody visiting them. Uh, and they are considered unaccounted for because they were in the section of the building that is collapsed. And that's all the information wow. we have right now. The Consul General tells me that some of those relatives are on their way here to Surfside to be at the Family Reunification Center. And they're standing by to support them. Uh, but that's, that's all we know at this point. Okay, Jackson, it's an inter another Canadian connection on this story here that it appears one of the developers behind this project, this collapsed building, a guy named Nathan Reber, Reiber, Polish-born Canadian, who was once charged with tax evasion and cited for legal misconduct in Canada. This being widely reported in, uh, on this story now. Wh what do we know about, the, about this Canadian connection here on, the, on the, one of the developers here of this project? Yeah, so he actually moved to Florida in the early 1980s and essentially used uh, the Champagne, Champlain Towers, which there's three towers, including the one that partially collapsed. He used that redevelopment project to essentially uh, springboard his, his recovery, his new life. And so he was involved in the project uh, at that point. Um, and there was another um, uh, Canadian who was apparently involved in the uh, development uh, in its early days as well, as part of the project management. But, uh, you know, what oh. relation we may have to the, the ongoing maintenance problems that were identified in 2018, there's, there's no firm link there. Okay, what a, what a tragic situation this is. And this man, man, this is a tragic story for you to cover t today, Jackson. And you mentioned that you're at the Family Reunification Center ac across the st uh, street from this collapsed condo. And I guess just people hoping praying for a miracle that maybe their loved ones can be found alive in in the rubble like what kind of technology can they use to, to find people in there you know they're using uh sonar to listen for any sounds even faint sounds like say tapping or scratching uh which they say wow. they're hearing they don't they say that doesn't necessarily mean it's coming from uh people it's just sounds that are emanating from the rubble and they will call they'll call everyone together and have them be quiet so they can listen better to that uh they're also using infrared technology to, de to de determine if there are heat signatures 
And uh, they're also using small cameras that they can fit into those void spaces and have a look around. Uh, in, wow. in addition to things like sniffer dogs and, of course, this, this uh, manual search of the rubble where they're picking through what they describe as pieces of concrete the size of uh, everything from baseballs and basketballs to slabs that need to be moved by cranes. Okay, unbelievable. Jackson, last question for you. Obviously, a huge investigation will be undertaken now into how this happened. What, what can you say about the early stages of that and how big this investigation is, and will they be able to find out how this happened? It's something that's probably going to take months and months to get done. Uh, the early sort of accountability questions are focusing around a, a 2018 engineering report that warned that there were major, major structural issues with the property that needed to be addressed immediately. And then right. five weeks later, uh, reports suggest that a building inspector from Surfside actually met with the condo association and said, oh, it looks fine. You don't need to worry about it. So something seems to have lost, been lost along the way there. The mayor of Surfside says absolutely there will be a full investigation once we get through the rescue mission. But in the interim, he's asked for any and all documents to be made public so that people can start digging into this themselves. Jackson, thanks for taking the time for us today. I appreciate it a lot. My pleasure.